This is the Journal of American History podcast for June 2013. We welcome today Paul Sutter, who is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he teaches modern U.S. and environmental history. His article, The World With Us, The State of American Environmental History, appears in the June 2013 issue of the Journal of American History. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. I was reminded in reviewing your piece, Paul, of my one of my mentors at UC Santa Barbara, Walter Capps, who talked about the field that I came out of, religious studies, as a subject field rather than uh, a particular discipline. And it felt very much to me that that was really kind of the case for environmental studies as well, that it really is this kind of vast subject field rather than a discipline. And I wondered what you thought about that, and as you think about that, um, if, if you could talk about the characteristics uh, of the several generations of environmental historians that you write about and the roots of the diverse roots of environmental history. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And actually, well, let me start out by saying, you know, one of the great opportunities in, in doing this piece was to sort of think biographically even about the, my relationship to the field of environmental history. And I feel like, you know, I came into graduate school right when that first JH roundtable had been published and, uh, and really sort of think of myself as a second generation environmental historian. And, and when I was in graduate school, I worked with Donald Worcester at the University of Kansas. It felt as if one could really teach a, a readings course over the semester in American environmental history and, ass- and assign all of the major works. And, the field was still very much in its infancy then, and one of the results was, I think, that uh, environmental historians were were ranging much more widely in terms of the reading they were doing, uh, uh, and and so in that sense, it, I think it truly was what what I, I take to be your meaning when you say a subject field. We were looking for all sorts of in, inspiration for bringing environmental concerns uh, to history, uh, finding it in in. Uh, philosophy, anthropology, geography, uh, and in interdisciplinary fields like environmental studies, as well as the what you might call the informant sciences, uh, ecology being the most important one there. And as an aside, I will say, you know, doing this essay was incredibly hard in part because environmental history is so sweeping of a field, and in its, at least in its ambitions, and I think many of those ambitions over the several generations of its practice have been realized. Environmental history was in many ways an, a new thing under the sun in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It emerged very much out of the environmental movement and a, and a felt sense among many historians that we needed a, a more thorough, grounded, complex historical sense of the environmental problems we faced. And as I hint at in the essay, I think it was in that sense very much of a piece with the social history turn uh, in the historical profession, sort of widening the whole field of history to take in this period of, of, of tumult in American history. Before environmental history, though, there were certainly many fields that I think mimicked uh, or foreshadowed our interests. 
I, I mentioned several in the essay, but you know, I think of, say, the Anal School, uh, which was a, a sort of early environmental history. Certainly the field of geography was concerned with many of the same uh, questions that we were coming to. As an undergraduate, I studied uh, American studies and the field of American studies and in its initial incarnation, the sort of myth and symbol school, had a tremendous amount of what I would call environmental history uh, built into it. And many, and many, many other fields. And, and right now, I, I, I'm trying to finish up, as I, I think I've mentioned to you before, a book on a sort of quirky book that focuses broadly on the history of soil erosion and its relationship to plantation agriculture. And one of the things I've discovered in doing that book is a, is a, a kind of environmental history um, rooted in older southern agricultural histories. So the more you dig, the more you find that environmental history had been practiced in, in various places and in various ways before it was invented as a self-conscious discipline in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, and that we were building, standing on the shoulders of lots of other of lots of other work. It's, it's interesting to me, Paul, that uh, you begin your piece by talking about the um, the classic 1990 roundtable in the JAH, uh, which you say introduced readers to the new discipline of environmental history. We're now 23 years later, uh, but you're already able really to talk about several generations. Can you give listeners a sense of of you know what uh, what were the foundations of the first generation and and what's in the process of changing into the second and as you look ahead to the third? Yeah, well, you know, obviously generations are always somewhat artificial constructs imposed upon the, the all of this, but it, it seemed particularly given that that sort of biographical sense that I mentioned that you know to a great extent I, I interpreted my charge in writing this essay as summing up the work in the field since I entered it, which was roughly at the same time as that first JH roundtable. You know, I think the most important works in early environmental history were works like Roderick Nash's Wilderness in the American Mind, really much more of a kind of intellectual history, but, but certainly one that was hugely influential on the developing field as well as in fields like American Studies, still very much in print and enjoying both the scholarly and popular audience. Uh, my own advisor, Donald Worcester's books, um, particularly Dust Bowl, which was published in 1979 and won the Bancroft Prize, uh, and then William Cronin's Changes in the Land, well, really important books, and, and you might add in there uh, works by Richard White and Carolyn Merchant and, and Steve Pine, you know, met, met all the participants of that first roundtable. And, you know, there's a way in which that first roundtable I call it a kind of function as a summary of that first generation, but it was really almost more of a fulcrum because many of the, the issues raised in that sort of challenged some of the assumptions of that first generation. I think in the simplest sense, those assumptions were, um, and I might do a little bit of violence to some of the people working in this, but for simplicity's sake, let me say this, that, that they, were, they were histories that were to a great extent driven by um, environmentalist assumptions and I think particularly to the notion that there is a sort of identifiable nature out there in need of protection to which we could give historical voice. And I think Don Worcester's Dust Bowl is a great example of that. He talks frequently about the wisdom of nature and, and the ways in which um, humans extending themselves 
out into uh, the arid southern plains with powerful new technologies and not a lot of attention to local ecology could do great damage. It was a, it was a narrative of environmental decline to a great degree, I think, that first-generation narrative, at least in a material sense. And then in an intellectual sense, and I think Nash's book is a great example here, it was a, almost a, a sort of Whiggish or progressive story about how people were becoming better attuned to the needs of nature and, and its protection. In fact, I often will enter my environmental history, my American environmental history classroom and say there are two dominant narratives in American environmental history. One is a narrative of material decline and the other is a narrative of intellectual progress. And, and my goal this semester is to make both of those more complicated in your minds. So I think the, 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 the jump from the first generation to the second generation was a jump in, in complicating both of those narratives, making us understand, for instance, that what we had taken to be progressive political achievements in conservation and preservation and environmental regulation uh, were not always so. They had important social implications, often privileging one group over another, um, that our ideas of nature were culturally constructed in ways that shaped our, our conservation policies and not always beneficial ways, and that, that sometimes the natural world was much more resilient a place than we gave it credit for, uh, and that not all history was a history of material decline. Um, and I think of you know, a book like Changes in the Land, I, if you read that today, I think it, it is, a, is a work that was really beginning to complicate both of those narratives. Uh, and I think the second generation really followed suit. Thank you, Paul. And can I just continue in this vein? Uh, one of the things that was striking uh, to me and I'd, I'd love to read more uh, about this, is the complex history of the concept of nature and then also the reality of nature uh, as environmental history historians have understood it over time. Can you talk about uh, about the our, our changing understandings among environmental historians of, of what that term means? Oh boy! <laughs> In twenty <laughs> words or less. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No. This, this is you know this nature is in, in many ways our category of analysis. It's what environmental historians have obsessed over and pulled apart um, for the first several generations into you know I would sort of say into a third generation of environmental historiography. Um, and one of the things I try to point out very quickly in the essay is that. While nature has been something we spent a whole lot of time pulling apart, and I'll say another word or two about that in a minute, it's, it's striking to me that environment has been a kind of alternative category, but a, a very under-theorized one. And I think one of the things environmental historians ought to be doing is first moving away from nature and to environment, and second, doing a lot more to think about what environment means to us. Now, the reason why nature is a sort of troubling concept, I think, um, or the reasons are maybe two major ones. One is that nature is a concept that is absolutely encompassing. Uh, it lumps together all of that world which is not cultural and, and in some ways not human, although certainly one of the things environmental historians have often talked about is the ways in which humans are themselves part of the natural world. And so even the nature-culture divide, um, finding that boundary can be a difficult one. Um, the other part of nature is that it, it has built into it 
a, a strong normativity. Um, I often point out to my students that when we use a word like natural, we really mean two things. We mean of the natural world, and we mean the way things should be. Um, and both of those uh, meanings of nature powerfully shaped, I think, the field, particularly in its first generation, but also, I think, raised some really major concerns that, you know, one is, is there such a singular thing called nature out there about which we can write, or is that really a construct we impose upon the world? Um, Raymond Williams has a, a famous essay on this term in which he talks about our belief in nature as a kind of monotheism, and at, some, at one point I borrow that phrase, and I think it might even be in my response to uh, the, the commentators on my article. To, to lump everything together is a strange thing to do, and I think a monotheism is an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, nature really is a kind of, I think, a sort of environment, uh, an enlightenment ideal, um, that there is this world out there that is ordered and makes sense and that we can, through science, come to understand it. But at the very moment that environmental history was emerging as a modern field, and was turning to disciplines like ecology to help us understand this thing we called nature, many of the scientists we were relying upon were suggesting to us that it was a much more fragmented and stochastic or chaotic place than, than we perhaps wanted it to be. And, and that realization really, in, in some sense, destabilized the, the ethical dimensions of our narratives. The, the kind of dual meaning of nature as the non-human and and the sort of and the normative gave us a, a sort of a simple narrative that we could write about the, of humans intruding on the natural world and doing bad things to it. But once we sort of began to question this notion of nature in deep ways, uh, understanding it as very much a cultural notion, um, environmental history narratives became. Much, in some ways, much more challenging to write. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the dominant themes of what I would call the second generation of American environmental history has been a kind of inward turn on nature uh, to critically assess it as a category of analysis and to say, and I think that's a, a sign of sort of healthy maturation, you know, in the same way that I think, you know, probably too simple, but uh, a sort of contributionist women's history evolved into a history of women and gender, using gender as a critical category of analysis. And much of the second generation then was really uh, employed in pulling apart this idea uh, of nature and looking at all the ways in which it had culturally inflected uh, our, uh, our efforts to conserve and preserve the natural world and, and also to make sense of it more broadly. And there are ways in which that was hugely important, but I also think there were ways in which that was uh, hobbling a little bit in terms of our, our analysis. And one of the things I say in my essay is I think as we became much more critical of, of, of our own category of analysis, we also became much more reticent to jump into advocacy. And again, I, historians need not and maybe ought not to be advocates in any simple sense. But I also think it's the case that many people in the field of environmental history entered it for the same reason I did, which was to use history to critically assess um, their environmental commitments. And th that certainly was one of the chief activities and, and I would argue great successes of the second generation of environmental history. But it left, I think, some work 
undone in terms of returning to the very real environmental problems of the world and trying to apply the insights of history to their solution. Mm, thank you, Paul. And let me go on here with um, a comment that you made in the piece. If I had to tersely sum up the drift of American environmental historiography since 1990, I would say simply all environments are hybrid. And then you go on uh, to make a very important point uh, that we need to see environments, your words now, necessarily historical. So can you talk with listeners a little uh, about this notion of hybridity and why it's important and what it means to look at environments as necessarily historical? Yeah. Um, boy, th these are both two complicated concepts and, and ones that I've struggled with. But I think hybridity emerged in the field of environmental history as a concept specifically designed to counter the ways in which a strictly police boundary between what was natural and what was cultural didn't really map onto the world uh, around us. And so historians began to talk about the world out there as hybrid. And I think, as I pointed out in the essay, there were two important implications to this. One is that much of which we had of what we had come to understand as sort of purely natural from, you know, pristine wilderness uh, across the landscape spectrum, what was not, was had deep traces of culture within it. Uh, and, and the other is that, and I think this is equally important, although I think in some of the historiography it gets a little bit less emphasis, that what we had come to understand as cultural was still very much inflected with uh, environmental entities and forces. And so, Richard White, the historian, has talked about there being a kind of hope in hybrid landscapes that, that you know, our older kind of moralistic environmental narratives of humans being everywhere a disturbing agent were really, frankly, depressing. But if we understand that the landscapes around us are hybrid, that they're still pulsing with nature, even as they show the effects of culture, we might have a little bit more hope for this, this world around us and our narratives might be a little bit less um, depressing. Now, hy hybridity then was a concept very much designed to be a corrective to these two sort of pure categories of nature and culture, and a very, I think, useful and important one in, in transitioning the field from first to second generation. Uh, the, the example I use in the essay is one about, you know, how we might think about say dams in the American West historically. My again, my mentor Donald Worcester. In his book, Rivers of Empire, famously wrote about dams as a kind of domination over nature in the West, one that had important implications for social relations and, and politics in that region. Uh, but along come scholars like Richard White and the Organic Machine and even Mark Fiji and Irrigated Eden, who show that actually the development of dams and water infrastructure in the West was much more of a blending of what we had traditionally called nature and culture. And so hybridity becomes, I don't know, you might call it a kind of new lens for looking at the world around us, which allows us to both see nature and culture, uh, but to also recognize how entangled, intertwined, intermeshed they, they are uh, in the everyday world and to, to see that there are very few pure expressions of either. Um, now, as much as I've appreciated that hybrid turn in environmental history, I think it has also been somewhat limiting. It, it has 
sort of taken two categories and mashed them into one in ways that corrected old habits but didn't give us a whole lot of purchase on, I think, you know, pushing analyses forward, both in terms of, well, maybe particularly in terms of what I would call uh, the moral narrative of environmental history. And so the essay asks a series of questions of, well, you know, what do we do with this hybrid world once we recognize it, once we see that nature and culture are intertwined everywhere? How do we uh, value it? How do we tease these landscapes apart? How do we make normative distinctions between them? The other thing that I think it's important to understand is that, and this goes more to the question about you know, the natural world being fundamentally historical, is that while the first generation of environmental historians was somewhat thrown off by uh, a stochastic trend in ecology, a notion that the natural world was really less ordered and more chaotic than we thought it was, in many ways the upshot of that scientific story about the natural world was fundamentally uh, historical or maybe natural historical, that all natural environments show the effects of change over time, uh, are the products of change over time, are themselves fundamentally historical. And by that, I mean not merely that they're shaped by human culture, but that they're shaped by natural events as well, rather than, say, immutable natural laws. So, for instance, students of, of forests uh, and forest ecology had often argued that these landscapes, these environments in certain settings would move in a particular almost teleological direction towards what was known as a climax state, and that any time they didn't uh, move in that direction, it was somehow an anomaly, sort of white noise uh, that messed up natural laws. But increasingly, um, ecologists themselves have taken a much more historical view of their subject matter and have recognized that that the forests they study, to give again one example, are the products of, of events like hurricanes and fires uh, and other extreme weather, uh, as well as of uh, human uh, interventions and influences. And I think even though that realization is a little bit destabilizing normatively, it, it also is, it allows historians to interject themselves in a very meaningful way and suggest that we really have something to say about this broader field of environmental protection and what we might call environmental understanding. Let me ask you this, because it's such an interesting uh, and, and challenging topic to see <clears throat> the natural as as historical and you mentioned people looking at forests, you know, or looking at um, uh, mountains as historical. And yet compared to the time spans that, you know, I'm used to looking at uh, as an American historian, I mean, the time spans that environmental historians, along with, you know, geologists and others have to look at are, I mean, they're beyond the imagination in a way, aren't they? Is that is that a challenge in a way to think about eons as as historical and the kinds of small changes that take place over huge, vast amounts of time. Um, it seems to me would, it, it's really challenging for me, and I wonder, for example, for your students if it is. Yeah, well, I think, I think actually this is one of the f future challenges of environmental histor history is to, is to knit together these different timescales. I think for the most part, environmental historians – have operated on what we would recognize as a historical timescale, on the timescales with which 
um, you know, as you say, you, you would be comfortable. Um, but certainly if we look at um, a contemporary environmental problem like climate change, you know, A, it's a fundamentally historical problem. It's about what has climate historically been and where are we as human beings pushing it. But, but to get a sense of the normative, it also requires us to go back and look at over various temporal scales, what has climate been historically? And that, I think that raises some really interesting questions. There is no such thing as a, what we might call a kind of wilderness climate, a climate that was sort of in perfect equilibrium before humans started messing with it. And that then raises a series of questions about, well, what the, ought the climate to be and how ought we to, to act to stabilize it? And I think the, the, probably the most important question, the most important insight there is that the answers to those questions are not going to be found in some sort of immutable nature out there beyond us. They're going to be found in our preferences and, and in terms of what we want from the world around us and how, how well we can um, sort of define and achieve that. Climate change is a fundamentally human concern, though it will have both uh, substantial human and environmental impacts. And you could, you could sort of make that case in, in other realms. But again, to go back to the, the, the point you sort of raised, to, to really get historians engaged with other, particularly scientists, is going to involve some pretty important work around the edges of these different temporal scales. And you've seen that, I think, in other areas of history, particularly big history and deep history. I think deep history in particular practitioners of deep history, people like Daniel Lord Smale have been working hard to get us to break down what have been fairly artificial barriers between the historical and, say, the prehistorical. Um, and that is one of the big challenges of the field, and I'm not sure it's one that we've done a whole lot of work on. But, you know, obviously it, it, one of the big barriers is, is, a, is what we might call an archival barrier, is moving beyond the sorts of archives with which historians as humanists are comfortable and getting into other archives. Um, I think in, in the context of American environmental history, and it's something that I unfortunately sort of neglected in the essay, one of the really important areas of work here is pushing for a much fuller inclusion of Native peoples in our continental history and understanding that American history doesn't begin in 1492. And of course, we've had a, a huge amount of work on this and yet I still think we tend to fall back on in our teaching and in our writing a sense that, you know, American history begins with settlement. And I think, so that's just one example of the way in which I think we need to, as environmental historians, work across scales and sometimes scale up and, and complicate and break down these divides that still define our history. Yes, and you, you mentioned as well, uh, and listeners can, can read more about this uh, important work being done in marine and oceanic studies and and obviously transnational connections in, uh, in environmental history, too. You have a number of uh, really fascinating uh, sections in your, in your piece. Um, you talk about the environmental management state, agro-environmental history, the environmental history of disease and health. Uh, and then also, and perhaps this is a, a good good topic to to conclude on, a recent focus on the urban world. Can you talk some about that? About environmental historians' focus on the urban world? Yeah, I, I think, and I'd even you know, in the essay, I call it the human-built world, in part because I think 
some of the best work in this area, going back to um, William Cronin's Nature's Metropolis, have in fact tried to break down the divides we've often created between the urban, the suburban, and the rural to recognize it as a sort of set of interrelationships. But I think for a long time, particularly during the first generation, it was hard to conceptualize, for environmental historians to conceptualize urban environmental history. And in the essay, I even talk a little bit about some of the debates during that first generation about whether the city even counted as a space within which to do environmental history. And, and partly because there was a sense that at least within this older narrative of modernity being a period in which humans had come to dominate nature, that cities were uh, places of ultimate domination, where there wasn't a whole lot of, of, of what we may call nature to be found. And I think the second generation of environmental historians, one of the things they have done most skillfully is to elucidate the ways in which uh, our cities continue to be places uh, filled with the natural. And in that sense, I think you see a sort of uh, expansion of the sense of the natural, but also a kind of, I don't know if you postmodern is quite the right word, but a, a kind of understanding that we've never, maybe the way of putting it is we've never been modern, that we've never fully mastered these environments in the ways that we thought we did. And I, I think uh, an urban setting is a great setting to look at that in. Um, and so in the essay, I, I end up arguing that, in a sense, the second generation of urban environmental history, the environmental history of the human-built world, has been an effort to achieve a kind of urban environmental literacy, to see the ways in which cities has, have functioned to shape our ideas of, about nature, the ways in which cities have functioned to reshape material environments, uh, both in the sort of the immediate setting of the city as well as in a series of processes of production and consumption, um, and, and disposal that very much um, sort of dominate and describe what we might call the ecology of cities. And so you've seen environmental historians move into the urban world and out of the wilderness, which was, uh, I think, a defining early uh, model and norm for the field in ways that I think have been incredibly fruitful and that have also, uh, in many ways, helped us to redefine the moral core of the field, to engage with scholars on issues like environmental justice. But cities are also, in, in, in that sense, very much hybrid places, places that, that are not culture-dominating nature, but are culture and nature mixed together in some very uh, complex and fascinating ways. Mm, thank you, Paul. We've been speaking today with Paul Sutter, an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he teaches modern U.S. and environmental history. His article, The World With Us, The State of American Environmental History, appears in the June 2013 issue of the Journal of American History. I should mention, too, that there are six uh, short, very fascinating responses to uh, Paul's piece, and then Paul wrote a, a very short response to the responses. So that uh, all appears as a package. Paul, thanks again for taking the time to do this. It's been wonderful. Well, thank you. My pleasure. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year.
Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in September 2013 for our next episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org. Thank you.